Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. Who's in the studio with you? Kevin Roos of the New York Times. Oh, God, that guy. No, <laughs> um, you know, here's the fucking thing is I don't read the emails. Yeah, we know. And that's yeah. the, like, <laughs> no, like, you know what? Well, there Kevin, weren't any that's emails. Right. I don't since. either. I thought this was Pod Save America. So. <laughs> 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 we, we, we know of new methods of attack. Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the fifth column podcast. This is your almost weekly rhetorical assault of the news cycle of people that make it occasionally ourselves. My name is Camille Foster. I do lots of important, fundamental, essential things in the preaching. I'm delighted to be here. It's Thursday evening, November 29th, 2018, a day that has been filled with breaking news. And I'm delighted to be in this particular room, despite the fact that I'm so close to Times Square and Anthony Fisher is hitting things and making noise. Um, wow. We have we have a fully stocked. What did I say about him not being nice? <laughs> really? I, I was being nice. I was just stating a fact. Um, the voice that you hear, Matt Welch, editor at large at Reason Magazine. He's in the building. Anthony Fisher, our very good friend who, Anthony, where are you again? You're, you're insider, you, right? You knew that. You're at insider. I'm at Excuse insider, me. yes. Politics editor that. at insider. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, we are insider. Stop it. Dot com. Business insider, too. Um, our, our very good friend, Michael Moynihan, the legend, who is a national correspondent for Vice News Tonight, which is on HBO, folks. You can find it there. Um, he also does other things there. And uh, Michael, you're on Skype, yes, in Brooklyn? Yeah, yeah, I, I am. I'm just like probably like two miles from you. But That's it okay. seems like it was really hard to get to Midtown tonight. Yeah, yeah. So sorry about that. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, you have to actually put on pants to go to town, <laughs> at least some of the time. I mean, no, you don't, actually. That's yeah. the thing. That was really not the excuse this time. But yeah, no, I'm here in Brooklyn and everything's fine. We do Does have it sound a... okay? You sound, no, sound, sounds really good. You sound great. Yeah, you sound great. great. Fantastic. We do, we We're do never have... going to see him again now that he sounds good from Brooklyn. Right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we do have a guest in the studio, our very good friend, our new friend, Kevin Roos who's a columnist for Business Day, writes at large for the New York Times Magazine. Business Day is just the business section yeah. of the New York Times. Start, right. Start over. Yeah. Columnist for Business Day, writer at large. Is, in is, in nice. Say New York Times. The business <laughs> for Christ's goddamn <laughs> section of the Christ. New York Times. <laughs> no, don't fix nothing because this, this exposes... <laughs> Kevin, wow. leave now. I, I'm well, reading. I, I, I'm lo- reading. Love to book New York Times well, guests no, and have this. it downplayed look at in this. the intro. Look at this. Yeah. No, check this out. Check this out. Kevin Guys, Roos- I, I really got a guy have a hard stop at three. <laughs> check this out. Check this out. Kevin Roos is a columnist for Business Day, writer at large for the New York Times Magazine. His column, The Shift, examines the intersection of technology, business, and culture. We can't help but have four different brand Too names for the same thing that <laughs> Kevin is doing. Why can't we just say Kevin Roos is writing superlative, important things about the intersections of business, technology, and culture. Why do you have to have four different awnings, Kevin? Listen, take it up with the bosses. <laughs> wow. I just I write words. So you're and saying I you do object to what the bosses have done to you? Yeah. Uh, no, you know it's 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 diversifying risk. You know, one <laughs> uh, of those things is going to survive the newspaper when, apocalypse. Exactly. Exactly. Well, thank you for joining us, Kevin. And I, I want to talk about some technology stuff, but there there are some other things happening in the news as well. So we're going to meander through this stuff and get there. Um, but quickly, this is the first time we've been together in the room for a while. The last time I was here in the studio, I was surrounded by four other guys that did not look like you gentlemen. Um, and wow, no you went there. Skype. They I'm were Jewish. Saying, I'm, no, I'm just saying no, they no. didn't look like you guys. They're different people. Okay. 
You guys, I don't know. Hey, can can I can I tell you something? I want to tell you. I have to send this to you today, Camille. Go for it. But I don't know if he's going to be mad that I reveal his name. My friend, uh, the writer uh, Jay Kang, uh, Jay Caspian Kang, who's a good pal of mine, uh, texted me today, and he said, "Everyone I know, am I allowed to just read his text on the air?" Well, we can beep his (laughs) name. He said, "Everyone I know has been talking about the roundtable on your podcast, which is, I presume." you know, with uh, Thomas uh, Chatterton Williams and, and Glenn, Glenn Lowry, Lowry and, John McWhorter. Yeah, John McWhorter and all the, all the dissident uh, uh, people that you had on last week. Which was, it was a great, great episode, by the way. I loved it. Thank you. Thank you very much. I, I do think it was a remarkable accomplishment. I will, I will say this, one thing about it. After the recording, I got a lot of very good feedback, some negative feedback as well. A lot of people who were unhappy, um, but that's that's to be expected. I don't expect to please everyone, but... Some of the folks who were offering compliments were saying things like, wow, what, a, what an amazing collection of black intellectuals. Oh, no. Um, oh, no. And again, <laughs> to the extent you want to extend some, someone a compliment like that, I think that's fine. But I don't understand why you need to qualify it. You it know, is an amazing assemblage of intellectuals. That's what it was. It was remarkable. It needs no qualification. Talking They're at least exemplary. somewhat about issues of race. Sure. And that's a way that's to okay. do it. I mean, I, I've told you before, Camille, and I and I say this against my own interest, mm. or at least against my own instinct, which has changed <laughs> through uh, overextended exposure towards you. I know that sometimes you think that I don't listen to a word that you say, or at least agree with any of it, which is more or less true. But um, that, uh, no, to my own daughters, I have said when they've said oh you know this person that was a black person i say that was a person with black skin there's a difference um uh like describe the thing that you see that's fine sure but don't necessarily think that there is this category that encapsulates a lot of different uh, uh attributes that you might have to it and uh and i think that that's a useful reminder as pedantic and boring as you are bringing it up every fucking time it's not pedantic and boring if you people need reminding you people <laughs> you people he's quick. Wanna, he's quick i want to also point out that that was a great achievement and my wife also extends that and everyone who i've seen uh, uh i've i've watched react to this eli lake other people on social media have been very complimentary of that uh, also saw a lot of hosannas for uh, Moynihan's uh, piece uh, for Vice mm. that ran last week, right, Michael, or, or earlier this week? I appreciate the compliment, Matt. It was uh, it was two nights ago. I think it was Tuesday night. Although um, you should, there's something I had something on tonight with Masha Gessen, which I hope people will watch. Was quite fun too. Um, who was uh, surprisingly skeptical of all the Russia stuff, um, which was fairly interesting. But the feminist apparel thing uh, was great. It did really well. People were really. Um, uh, happy with it. But the interesting thing about it was that everyone, it was, it, you know, Kissinger on the Iran-Iraq war. It's too bad everyone couldn't lose in that battle. And everyone thought they came out well, which I, I think it's a sign of a successful uh, piece is that I got positive notes from from people on both sides of the issue. Um, and I hope people watch it. It was good. It was fun. Very cool. Well, maybe we should just get to it because we're starting pretty late and it, there's a lot of ground to cover. Um uh, my my inclination, gentlemen, because as a lot of people who are listening know, we've got a live event coming up next week, Tuesday, actually, at the Comedy Cellar in New York City, 7 p.m. We will be recording a, a live installment of the Fifth Column podcast, which we will then put on the stream so it won't be live when you get it. But if you're in the room, it'll be live. And as I understand it, there are people traveling from across the country to come and join us Multiple. and rendezvous with us for this true? remarkable uh, There are people who uh, have contacted me, two at least, 
uh, from other countries who can't make the show because of prior commitments, but want to know where we're hanging out afterwards. Well, that, then they're not sufficiently committed, and uh, they're dead to me, <laughs> and I don't you want know, them to listen Can I ask anymore. a question that, that maybe it's impolite to ask while we're in the air? What the fuck is wrong with these people? <laughs> it's a, it's a, just, get, just get a computer and download it. It's like, it's easier. No, 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 no. no, yeah. no. Stop that. Stop that. No, Come it's going it's it's to be a phenomenal, wonderful well, I, time. I look forward to seeing everybody. Yes, and if, you, if you're interested in details for this, although, I mean, at this point, you might not be able to get in, but you should go to wethefifth.com forward slash events, uh, wethefifth.com forward slash events, and you can get additional details, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I like the aspiration of the plural. That's pretty good. What events is in we're going to do more. Than oh. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Wait, let me make sure that's exactly what it is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it is. Yeah, it is. Events. It might be. Yeah, it is. Um, um, but thanks for that. Matt. Yeah. So we have we have to point out we have special guests, too. Oh, we do. Um, yeah. Yes. Uh, two. And, um, you know, I hope everybody shows up. Have we have we sold out yet? Can people still get the thing? I, I don't know. I, I suspect I we, we might have. So this could be one of those things where we're just rubbing salt in the wound for people who can't get yeah. in. But that's your fault. Yeah. It's your own fault. Well, uh, to be very specific, uh, the Comedy Cellar does not sell tickets. They issue reservations, and the reservations are filling up fast. I don't know where we're at on that. But if you really uh, are that dedicated, people might not show up. You could you could try. Yeah. So bum rush it. And they, <laughs> yeah. It might be some, uh, you know, the, the weather could be bad or something. All right. But if you're interested, you know where to find out uh, more stuff. So at any rate... Next week, I suspect we'll probably get into some of these other things because there's like a lot of stuff going on. I mean, Mark Lamont Hill actually just got bounced from CNN tonight. Um, there might be interesting things to discuss there. Perhaps we'll get to that. Maybe not. There is a whole bunch of excitement around the Russia Gate uh, inve Mueller investigation. Uh, we've had news related to Manafort and Papadopoulos and Cohen and Roger Stone. The entire cast of characters seems to be getting themselves into trouble this Corsi. week. Corsi. Don't forget Corsi. Uh, and Corsi as well. Um, so <laughs> this is believe this cast bananas, of characters, by the way? Bananas. Who just... would have thought that this was that in, in, in any time in American history, we would be talking <laughs> about Jerome Corsi, you know, having, striking a deal with the President of the United States and like, this is utter insanity because, I mean, people remember Jerome Corsi, right? I mean, I, I, I seem to be the only one in kind of my circle of friends who had heard of him prior to, to two days ago. Or even prior I mean, towards uh, prior to the uh, birther thing, because he was most famous in 2004, not even 2012, right? Yeah. I mean, the birther stuff he wrote, he wrote a few books about about birtherism, didn't he? A few I mean, books. <laughs> Of course he was, Bump I mean, point size up. I, I, I know Alex Jones has been around for a while and there's, and there's people like in this, you know, milieu, but Corsi's, yeah, he's, he's done his time in this, on that beat. Yeah. And point out that, that as Matt's reference was to um, the classic book, which I think Penguin Classics is releasing this year, <laughs> Unfit for Command, mm -hmm. where he was, uh, gave us the uh, phrase swift boating. Uh, right, that was a Corsi joint. Yeah, wasn't it? it was a Swift Boat Veterans for Truth. Yeah, it's a John um, O'Neill, right? That he did uh, that who with. are going to uh, rip the lid off the lie that uh, is behind John Kerry, uh, because they were on his. I guess he had a boat that went real fast in Vietnam, and they had discrepancies about his behavior there, um, and that became a thing. Uh, or at least people pretended that it became a thing in 2004. Yeah, they, they say he em embellished the injuries uh, that uh, led to his multiple purple hearts. Yeah, and and he, he's also a 9-11 truther, and my favorite of his books, 
the 2014 also classic uh, book Hunting Hitler, which <laughs> which uh, which is Jerome Corsi, the historian of Nazi Germany, uh, saying that Hitler escaped. Uh, uh, Germany in uh, 1945 and uh, ended up in Spain. Are you and fucking think, kidding me? No, no. Then I think he ultimately ended up in Argentina, according to, to uh, the great Jerome Corsi. But he was uh, removed by a helicopter um, from the bunker. <laughs> it's good that he's close to the president of the United States, is all I'm saying. I almost admire the <laughs> the the hustle, because like, this is basically a guy who, like, if he'd been born in, like, 1986 instead of like 1946 he would be like a shit poster on on the internet he would like have his right. own subreddit uh-huh. and he would be like spinning these like memes out and, and he would be like a viral sensation but all he had was books like <laughs> he's like he's like I, I can't meme because memes don't exist so, yet so, so i don't so, understand is that a better outcome or a worse outcome unclear well, well yeah it's it's easier to get paid for writing books than making memes this is true sure. this is true um, well, I don't know what we can really do with most of these recent Russiagate developments, because the truth is that a lot of this stuff, I mean, is literally breaking tonight. I think it was this evening um, that BuzzFeed posted something about the Trump Tower Moscow project and the fact that it seems there were potentially promises made that a penthouse suite would have been given to Vladimir Putin um, as part of perhaps the sweetener for the deal, or maybe just a strategy for filling out uh, uh, leases in the property. Well, the, we, uh, but this is just it. We don't know. The The reporting on this is still really, really early. No, the the other stories that we've seen, speculate. like the Manafort-Assange meeting, which was reported in The Guardian, I believe it was. I'm not certain if there's been further cooperation uh, uh, along with that. That one's falling but, apart a yeah, lot. There yeah. had, the, 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 the doubt was placed on it immediately because it was so thinly sourced, but people, you know, wanted I to was, believe it. <clears throat> I was uh, on uh, uh, MSNBC this morning on uh, Stephanie Rule, and going on, the big uh, story was tethered to the developments which happened a thousand years ago, which were basically last night, um, uh, having to do with Roger Stone and Jerome Corsi. Jerome uh-huh. Corsi, who went on MSNBC for some reason, the reason probably is to signal to the president, please pardon me if, if it gets to it. Um, um, <clears throat> and there was new reporting uh, talking about the different timelines of Trump's conversation with Roger Stone uh, and how that fits in with, with uh, uh, different things. He had Manafort uh, uh, deal happening earlier. So we had plenty of things to talk about that had all happened in the previous 24 to 36 hours. And about 10 minutes into it, Michael Cohen shows up with absolutely no foreshadowing at all, not one tiny little bit at a New York courthouse to plead out to uh, not a local New York attorney charge, but a Robert Mueller charge uh, that he lied to Congress about Trump's, not about like Stormy Daniels crap that you could care about or not care about, depending on your point of view, but about um, his reporting of dealing with Trump's real estate deals in uh, building a Trump Tower in Moscow, um, and the discrepancies were huge. It's I think the last 24 hours, and we're recording this on Thursday night, I think the last 24 hours, the last 16 hours, are the worst hours of Trump's presidency. I, I think this is a not— You think in, so? I do. Huh. I do. Like, this is the first time I think that collusion looks— like something more than the fever dream of shit posters on Twitter. Hmm. Um, uh, because you have, not that collusion has been proven, of course it has not, um, but there has been a lot, uh, you can see the 
the backstory being filled in on a couple of different areas, leading you to wonder what is the next thing that Mueller has. Because Mueller, generally speaking, has over-delivered on his promises. Unlike <clears throat> Trump and his apologists, Devin Nunes people, hmm. they have tended to under-deliver on their promises. Oh, we're going to have a memo that's going to come out that's going to rip the lid out of all of this. Trump gave a, a, uh, an interview to New York Post. It was yesterday. It feels like a thousand years ago in which he said, you know what? I'm going to declassify all these FISA documents that it's really going to show that the Democrats, uh, you know, and the FBI have been colluding and it's really going to make them look bad. If they try to go after me, I'm going to do this completely empty threat any way you, you look at it. Um, so uh, all of these kind of Mark Meadows fever dreams haven't really worked out. The Mueller things have, have generally speaking, overperformed. And so what you have now is you don't have proof, of course, but you have a hell of a lot more than you've ever had before in terms of possible motivations, uh, uh, possible, um, you know, uh, Cohen is testifying in open court that he lied to Congress to try to protect individual one who is Donald Trump and his political statements that he had made representing his business interests with Russia, which were I have none. Um, and and Cohen had testified that there hadn't been any work on a Trump Tower deal in Moscow since January 2016. So the beginning uh -huh. of the Iowa caucus um, and like, well, actually, it was sort of 2017. It was after he had been elected president, they were still working on the deal. That is a significant thing, not necessarily. And I think we all try to look, not we all, but like the general conversation about this is always over-focused on the finish line. Did Trump collude? Uh, are we going to get to an impeachment? Is he, to, to spark Camille's interest, uh, is he a racist or whatever? Can we have a, a, a complete, <laughs> complete like, like judgment on issue X. Uh -huh. And I think uh, some of the people who've been writing uh, the best about this in the last 24 hours, uh, 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 a group of people who I would name check among them, uh, Ken White of Popat, Julian Sanchez of, of Cato, mm -hmm. um, Marcy What's-Her-Face from Empty Wheel, who's really good on this, um, and also uh, uh, David French uh, at National Review. Um, there's a through line in their commentary of this, which is like, the legal stuff is fascinating. It's interesting. Let's talk about it. It's un we don't know all this, but the underlying behavior that we know now much more than we did even 24 hours ago is super crappy on its own. Right. It's just that behavior. Un that it's unseemly is, is, is it's the, terrible. Yeah. I mean, it's really bad. Like Donald Trump and everybody around Donald Trump while he was running for president in 2016, then after he was elected president in 2017, made claims about his relationships, his exposure to his potential deal making with Russia and Russian ent entities that uh -huh. are now shown if this turns out to be true, and I have somewhat confidence that it will turn out to be true, um, and you should always have some skepticism built uh -huh. into that, um, lies, just bad, bad, bad lies uh, in, in, in specific, timely, awful ways. And that's a significant thing because impeachment, if it happens, or the next step, that if it happens, I mean, there's a, a Justice Department um, uh, guidelines saying that basically you don't uh, prosecute uh, a sitting president. And there's plenty of reasons why you don't do that uh, because he's executing his laws. You don't want to get too much uh, mucked up in that. So what you do is that you, you put a big fat report in the hands of people in the House of Representatives mostly and say, 
it's your turn now. Yeah. Um, so that becomes a political discussion, right? And so the political discussion now, which is different than a legal discussion, they're related, they overlap, but it's different. The political uh, discussion, which is just kind of people talking about stuff while they're drinking Knob Creek whiskey uh, at a table, mm -hmm. uh, is that Trump fucking lied about uh, a thing that was important in the news um, and that it, uh, a, a conduct that is important of, of a president to be. Um, and he lied about it pretty badly. And everyone around him seemed to have lied about it, too, if these things turn out to be true. So those are significant developments. I, I find I find a lot of what you're saying interesting. I, I oh think boy. there are massive holes, massive. massive holes in the narrative that we, we've yet to get filled in. Sure. Like the nature and extent and contents of any sort of discussion that was going on with respect to the actual negotiations for the Trump Tower project. We just don't know. Like, I don't know if there was like 52 emails that went back and forth or five. And a Trump Tower Moscow is the sort of thing that I don't know. I think people would notice once it starts getting built. Um, and, no, and it's, but, and well, it's, we know, but just to yeah, cut short, I, I'm, cut short, we, what we knew before uh -huh. was that they denied any I'm, conversations that had taken place. I think, I think and now we totally, knew that's a lie. Yes. And we knew true. that the at president, least X number the president of lied. conversations, I'm, I'm not to the president, everyone not, around him I and, you. and people that worked for him and had, had been his lawyers for 12 to 15 years, however long it had been, uh -huh. did it in order, he said, in open court, under sworn testimony yes, today to, to try to bury this and get rid of it. No, to try to yeah. protect the president from his own statements. I hear you. That it's not like at, at a the, speculation about a real estate it deal. Matters, on it that matters, but it matters if he's doing that at the direction of the president or not. Sure. Yeah. It's, I think that's, that's hugely consequential. Um, and it, it matters like earlier in your, in your soliloquy, you mentioned um, collusion like, I don't know that a Trump Tower Moscow project ends in collusion. I think, as you were saying before, like really embarrassing conduct for a presidential candidate. Yeah, no doubt about it. Well, the, but, uh, the, but collu the, the collusion, the collusion part, piece of it is. I, I agree that it's totally has been true. very far. No, it, it has been a bridge very far up yeah. until today. But I think today it's a bridge a hell of a lot closer because because the the Trump Tower meeting part of it is 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 only a part. It's the, the yeah. Jerome Corsi. Uh, and and here I, I'd like to get Kevin in, in here uh, because he's been following uh, WikiLeaks and other things like that. Um, the, that whole that was the huge story at nine o'clock this morning, nine fifteen. That story changed. But the huge story here was what was the timeline, August 2, August 3, August 5, with Roger Stone, with WikiLeaks. Uh, we can probably set aside the Guardian story for now because that seems to be kind of garbage. Uh -huh. But Kevin, maybe you can you can uh, correct me on all of that. The, the, the claim would be that there was a business interest reason and that there was overlap in the timing of this uh, with the timing of the release of and, and the knowledge thereof of the release of, of the, the emails. WikiLeaks emails, right? Right. And I, I think that's sort of a central question is, was the timing of the release of this emails centrally coordinated? Um, did people, you know, with access to Trump know about this? Did they time it uh, such that, you know, it would be maximally helpful to his right. campaign? Um, we know that WikiLeaks is sort of functionally... Um, allied with Russian interests like they they make no secret about that um, and I think it's can you can you defend that in a second or like exposit ex what's the word if that's a extrapolate well I mean it's it's just sort of you can look at all of Julian Assange's public statements you can look at their sort of evolution of their Twitter feed like they they're they're not um, 
you know, all of the sort of correspondence that we have, public and private, um, from, you know, involving WikiLeaks in 2016, um, they were very interested in in what was happening um, in the election. They were very interested in, in um, you know, helping Trump and hurting Hillary Clinton. Like, I don't think that's particularly controversial at this point. No, I do think totally about the, it's the connection to Russia. Is, is, I think that's, is, that's, that's the, the question and the notion that there's any sort of coordination between the campaign and Russia and right. even between the campaign and WikiLeaks. There was correspondence there. But was there coordination? Did they know that the emails were coming? All of that stuff, quite frankly, still like pretty vaporous, whatever the connections are. But Moynihan, you, you're you're on Skype, so I can't see you. I can't see if you're knitting your brow. Yeah. Um, I, I do wonder what your read is on these things, um, But which, again, it's quite early. But what do you suspect? Well, I mean, I know we're going to talk about it uh, maybe in a minute, but the Luke Harding story was kind of surprising to me. Um, you know, it's it's funny that you go out on the internet and, and sort of I've been looking to see if the Harding story has been any holes have been and uh, punched in it at all. And of course, the when you search his name, the only thing you come up with are stories on Sputnik and uh, the exile, Mark Ames and these mm. people who hate him so much. That thing does, as Matt say, said, strikes me as so odd because it would mean quite a bit, right? Uh-huh. I mean, you know, well, Paul Manafort running the campaign for a short period of time is able to be fired, but walking in to the Ecuadorian embassy on three occasions to meet with Julian Assange, I imagine somebody would would have seen that as a very surveilled uh, uh, piece of property in London. So that was the first thing that I've been trying to figure out what is going on with this thing. And of course, they've been changing uh, the story online without actually noting that they've made changes. And it's also worth noting that Luke Harding wrote a book called Collusion, a subtitle, something about you know how Russia and you know, you know the Trump campaign did X, Y, and Z to ensure the defeat of Hillary Clinton. It seems like they're thumbing the scale a little bit. And as anyone who listens to this show knows, I have absolutely no sympathy for the Trump campaign, which is, I think, full of rogues and scumbags and weirdos <laughs> like Roger Stone, who I've met a number of times and talked to a number of times. And kind of like. You know, who'd la- well, look, I mean, he's last time I talked to him, he told me he was in the in the midst of finishing a book about how Hillary Clinton was involved in the murder of John F. Kennedy Jr. So it's a type of person you're dealing with. I mean, these, these are not they're not bringing us our, their best people. <laughs> um, so, I mean, it's like Jerome Corsi and it's just this rogues gallery of weirdos. But I think that, of course, what happens here and this is an interesting thing, I hope um, that we put the interview I did with Masha Gessen online uh, soon but, you know, I was talking talking to her about this, and it's like the, the difference and the conflation of all of these, you know, freelance uh, scumbags and this idea of collusion between between um, the incoming Trump administration and and the FSB or the Russian government or the GRU in any capacity still strikes me as as fanciful. It doesn't seem like the number of dots that Rachel Maddow can connect yeah, on her. I'm still pretty much board. there. I mean, that, that's the thing that's, that's fairly important. I mean, you can always get to somebody lying. I mean, I spent last week, um, a day last week with Ken Starr. And, you know, one of the questions you always ask of Ken Starr, and everyone does this sort of ad infinitum over the years, is you started out with a crooked land deal and you ended up with a, you know, dress with jizz on it. I mean, how do we get there? It's like, well, yeah, we forgot about that. And of course I asked the star report had two or three mentions 
of Whitewater, mm -hmm. two or three mentions of the Rose Law Firm. Wow. Yeah. This happens, and Republicans, by the way, defended that at the time. So what we're talking about and what we're seeing here are a number of things that might be slightly far afield of the initial claim that there was some collusion between, between the Trump campaign and the Russian government. Look, it's also important to, to, to realize that it's all starting to come out now, right? This is the drip, drip, drip. The, you know, huge respect to the Mueller investigation and the investigators themselves that nothing has really leaked, um, nothing that they didn't want to leak. And I think now all this stuff I mean, when people are flipping like they're flipping, something is up. But I don't think it's it's going to be what 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 Rachel Maddow hopes it's going to be. Well, and it's interesting that all of this has happened in the sort of forty eight or seventy two hours since Trump, you know, reportedly turned in his answers absolutely right to the questions that Mueller and his team had had posed to him in writing. Um, you have to imagine that there might be some element of timing there where it's like, okay, now we have the answers. Now we have the point of reference against which to check all this other stuff. Um, and we've sort of gotten what we are going to get from him. So now it's time to start moving. I don't have any inside knowledge that that's, that those two things are related, but it does seem like things have been happening awfully fast since those answers. It's, got a, it's an incredible accelerant exactly right. yeah. of, of, uh, of things that have, have taken place uh, there. And I think Michael, that, that there's perhaps more to, the potential collusion claim uh, in that, uh, particularly through the Roger Stone and uh, and Jerome Corsi stuff, which still is obviously very unproven and, and nothing's out there yet uh, that we know about. But it feels like the walls are kind of closing in on on the relationship between these kind of uh, narratives. And the idea is that they knew in advance, on August 2nd, August 3rd, uh, before these things it came down, that there was uh, meetings with various Russians, the Trump Tower meeting kind of goes, the timing, the, 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 the datelines of all these kind of things um, start to overlap. Um, they haven't overlapped yet in, in a way that's convincing in the court of law or in the court of public opinion. Um, but all of this happening at the same time in this way um, – it's never going to be Rachel Maddow's fantasy, and, and I think in, in some uh, respects we can thank God that that's not going to be the case. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, I think that there is there is uh, an element to this also with uh, Mark Whitaker being uh, appointed as a acting attorney general or Matt whatever Whitaker. the hell he is. Um, Matt Whitaker, oh, fuck, whatever Whitaker, yeah, um, Lou Whitaker. Yeah, <laughs> That it's interesting to watch, basically, you know, if, if there was ever going to be someone saying you can't publish the Mueller investigation, um, we're seeing the Mueller investigation published. It's mm -hmm. going to be published tomorrow. We're recording this on, on, on Thursday night, right? So much has happened already just today. Yeah. But tomorrow we're seeing the sentencing hearing of Paul Manafort, right, uh, who ha was sharing information with Trump's lawyers while pretending to be a witness for uh, for uh, for Mueller. Um, and that sentencing report is supposed to contain uh, details of why and how they know he's lying. Yeah. That's part of the Mueller report. Maybe there isn't a Mueller report. Maybe the Mueller report is a series of legal filings that happen between now and Christmas or whatever your fill in the blank date is. And you don't actually need to have a, a finish line here since, again, this is not probably going to lead to a criminal indictment of a sitting president, but a, a sort of referral or a set of recommendations to the attorney general to then kicked down to the House of Representatives. There's so many court filings right now happening with people who are 
C-listers, D-listers who are represented by Larry Clayman. God help all oh, of them. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and and so <laughs> and so we're going to see well, a lot of this back. come out. Yeah, the, the the thing about the the timelines, and I, I want to pivot away from some of this specific stuff with respect to the the most recent stories, and and perhaps back to some of the core things, which I think you could probably speak to, Kevin, uh, in terms of the 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 central things that this investigation is about, the the election meddling and whatnot. But the thing about the timelines that you mentioned, Matt, is when we talk about like the Russian adoption meeting. And now the new things that we've learned um, or that we're beginning to learn about the, the Moscow Trump Tower, the, the notion that those things like marry together particularly well, like just still strikes me as not particularly sensible. Like the Russian adoption meeting seems to have originated with someone reaching out to say, hey, can we get a meeting about Russian adoptions, which turns out the meeting wasn't actually about that. But like, why would you need to be asking for that meeting if you're already in close collaboration and working on this Trump Tower building, which might get done? The the narrative doesn't make a great deal of sense. The I fact mean, that he has these tendrils that are Russia adoption meeting isn't that a little bit loaded? I've said already the Russian adoption meeting turns out to not have been about that, but the correspondence pertaining to how the meeting initially got set, right? did include Russian adoption and some of these other things. Like it's the I email got dirt that, on Hillary. Yeah, I got dirt on Hillary. Um, I've got dirt on Hillary uh, is the email that goes to, to Don Jr. But it doesn't say, hey, I've got dirt on e- Hillary. It happened to be the emails that we're going to release via WikiLeaks. Can we get together, have a meeting so that we can work this out together? Why are you sending that email through some random go-between when you already have high-level connections with Cohen for the Trump Tower building? The two, the two stories don't actually corroborate one another, support one another, and strengthen this general narrative of a deep collaborative effort between the Trump campaign and the Russian government I don't, I don't, to, I don't to think, undermine uh, the election. I don't think we have enough. They uh, do all make the Trump administration look bad, but that is precisely what I, I would expect from this gang of scoundrels. It makes them look more or less. Well, I'm not saying it makes them look less likely. I'm just saying it's not obvious to me that it makes it look more likely. But to, to perhaps step away from that, because the core issue here is the election meddling. It is the reason why folks are still paying attention to Russia all these months later. And Kevin, I know that you have for some time been writing about the various issues related to both the ongoing machinations with respect to social media and the potential for legislative fixes. And the uh, you had a recent piece about the the maelstrom that uh, I think I'm using the word maelstrom because of the way you described it in your piece. I'm not sure I, I would agree necessarily, but the potential meddling that might have been prevented by Facebook because of the actions they were taking. Um, I, I have sort of a, a high level central question. What what is always most interested me about the Russian election meddling question is when you're sort of looking at this story as a journalist how we're able to gauge the nature of the threat that's posed by people who might try to have, uh, say, a a disinformation campaign or something like that around an election, Um, the magnitude of that threat, like how severe is it? Um, And quite frankly, like the effectiveness of that threat, Uh, because all of these months removed from the election, those still seem to be like pretty substantial questions. So, Two years removed, essentially, from the election. Like, what do we know now 
about the the actions of <coughs> of the nefarious characters who were doing those social media postings. How how big a deal was it, um, and how consequential was it? What can we say definitively from your standpoint? Well, we, we actually know quite a bit. I mean, that's the interesting thing about the Russian sort of meddling part of this is that some of the first public filings we saw out of the Mueller team were the indictments of Russian hackers and people working in the troll farms and the Internet Research Agency and the Federal News Agency. Like, we, we actually know quite a bit from those filings um, about what these guys were up to. And basically, there were you know, sort of two main parts. There was this hack and release of the emails from John Podesta and others. Um, and there was this big information operation that they were carrying out as, you know, as a so-called troll factory, which involved setting up lots of Facebook accounts, which involved organizing these sort of real world protests, like the one in Dallas where the, you know, the, the Trump people went to sort of protest against the anti-Trump people. And turns out like both sides were stoked by, by internet research agency members. Um, so we know quite a bit thanks to the Mueller investigation and the work that the platforms themselves have done to sort of publicize what happened on, on their platforms. And, and it's really like I, I've been fascinated. I was fascinated specifically about like whether the same thing was going to happen in the midterms. And it didn't like we didn't see a huge information operation out of Russia. We didn't see a big hack and, and release. How do we know um, that? Well, we we know that there was no big hack and release because nothing much of consequence was released. Um, we know that Facebook and Twitter and and. Google did find some Russian pages, but they were not at the scale um, or the sort of level of influence. They've made it much harder for stuff like that to, to sort of organically grow. Um, but you're right. We don't know for sure that there wasn't any sort of influence. We just know that it it didn't look the same in 2018 as it did in 2016. And that's not results-based. Like It's not like, oh, my God, Hillary Clinton lost. There must be some reason for it. It could be Russians, right? Like, um, like I think people who don't get their fingers in the muck of the tech world and who might have political ideas about this and that are skeptical of these claims. You can hear something like, and we've talked about it on the show before, but like, oh my God, there's been, you know, 989,000 views of this Russian ad on Facebook. Can you believe it? And like, it's a drop in the ocean. People don't really right. tend to contextualize this. So from your perspective as someone who understands this in a way that the rest of us not named Camille might not understand and uh, uh, <laughs> your level of confidence that this is not sort of a politically or results driven kind of analysis. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to sort of quantify the the impact that an information operation campaign has because, you know, people don't just make decisions about who to vote for based on what they see on their Facebook feeds. Right. Um, and, and even so, it would, be, it would be almost impossible to attribute it to any one particular thing that they saw. People are seeing hundreds of things a day online. Sure, sure, sure. Um, and so I think it's th- that part of the discussion feels less interesting to me than sort of the, the contours of the operation itself. And but is, like what, I mean, isn't that the central thing, though? I mean, why should I care about the operation if the operation isn't consequential? Like the the fact is that if you spend, I'm not saying it's not consequential. Well, I'm saying no, it's, I'm, we I'm may saying, never know how consequential. But I'm say, but I'm suggesting that I don't I don't know that this is consequential. I don't know that it matters if there's a Russian Facebook page that gets people Americans, actual Americans, to show up 
for a protest in Texas on opposing sides, like I need to know whether or not this is something that we should actually be talking about for the next five years, whether or not we should be seeking legislative remedies to prevent this from happening again on Facebook, which I I know, as you've um, pointed out in some of your own reporting, like does in fact have consequences in terms of some of our other rights. Like once you start prohibiting people from doing various things online, forcing them to do these things under their own names, perhaps um, trying to insist on legislation for anyone who wants to do politically oriented posts online. Like these are prohibitions on speech or regulations on speech at a minimum. And that should be disconcerting to people. And if we're doing all of that in response to a threat that isn't particularly significant. Well, you that, don't know that. that. Seems, well, no, you don't that's, know that but that's, not, that's, why I, that's why I'm asking a question. I'm saying if we're doing it in response to a threat that isn't particularly significant, that's a big deal. So trying to quantify it in some way seems important. So I suppose that's why I started the question, like for you as a journalist, like how can you know how much attention to focus on questions related to these issues? Well, there, there has been some research done. I mean, there have been some academic studies of sort of media mentions social media activity in the months leading up to the election. Some of them have suggested that actually like misinformation um, on social media did materially contribute to um, to the election results. Some of it has said Largely because the election was so close. It's right, one of those right. I mean, any, anything could have right, a couple hundred thousand votes in any direction and the election turns out differently. But um, there have been some other studies that said, well, actually, this was, you know, this was more about the media. This was more about the sort of, you know, the, the Comey letter and, um, mm-hmm. you know, various coverage of the Podesta emails. But and like, the, like nonstop coverage that everyone gave to Donald Trump, just opening up every single one of his press conferences <laughs> for or not press conferences, or rallies for unpaid media forever. Right. So like, I think this is going to be like a discussion until the end of time is like what what factors contributed and, and to what degree. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, as a, as a tech journalist, like I am primarily concerned with the sort of gap between what these companies want to be doing and say that they are doing mm-hmm. and what is actually happening on them. I mean, this caught Facebook and Twitter and all these other platforms by total surprise in 2016. They didn't know for many months afterwards what had happened on their platforms. And so it's been fascinating to sort of watch them like do the forensic work of saying what happened, try to prevent it from happening again. And then as you're suggesting, like try to sort of look forward at the implications. You know, if we make these policies about authentic behavior now, um, what implications does that have going forward? Mm -hmm. And I think they've actually been sort of threading a needle that I think would make, you know, lots of people in your position happy where they say it's not about ideas, it's about behavior. Like if you are creating 25,000 fake accounts that are acting in concert to push out news stories about a set of leaked emails, like it doesn't matter what your political affiliations are. It doesn't matter what the contents of the emails are. It just matters that this is what they're calling coordinated, inauthentic activity. Like that's the line that they've drawn. Mm -hmm. So I think they would say like, it's not about which side, you know, gets the benefit from this activity. It's about like the, the sort of exploitation um, of the platform in a way that they don't want it to be exploited. It, it's funny, and it's like a sort of cliche thing to say at this point, but, you know, God knows that that um, the GRU and the FSB are smiling and, and rubbing their hands right now because the 
conversation about this is the great victory for them. Hmm. I mean, you saw Politico had a piece, and Kevin knows this much better than I do. I don't want to had a piece ages ago where they um, aggregated some of the, the the posts on Facebook that were um, sponsored and pushed by Russian intelligence. And they didn't get a ton of traction. Some of them did, some of them didn't. And it's a matter of, if you look at the stuff, we, we can't, of course, tell what effect this has on people. But I think that the sort of misinformation stuff in the, the U.S. that is, is, is such a problem during the campaign came from places that were homegrown and had no ties to Russia whatsoever and wish they did. I mean, in, Infowars is probably a sort of more malignant kind of presence on the political scene in 2016. When I went and visited Alex Jones in his studio in, in Austin, we were going through the numbers and I was trying to sort of aggregate how influential uh, Infowars was exactly. And it, and, and it was shockingly influential. And keep in mind that President Trump um, did talk to Alex Jones before he won. And according to Alex Jones, talked to him after and said, you know, thank you for your support. I mean, there's much nastier stuff and much more pernicious stuff and much more influential stuff coming out of a, a, a studio full of, you know, hard-on supplements in Austin, Texas, than there is <laughs> out of the Lubyanka in, in, in Moscow. You know, Michael, I, I went to you not because I wanted to hear what you had to say, although it's always uh, – in, in again, in, in this case, very interesting, but just coordinated inauthentic uh, activity. Um, that that is yeah. our next, like that's our EDM uh, band name, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's also it's also what I've uh, the, the words that I've coupled together to describe most of my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's funny because I I was um, in preparation for this. I, I'm always doing a bunch funny. of reading. That's but funny. in prep, I, I do preparation for this, Matt. I have to. I, I've got a day job that is different from just paying attention to the news cycle. Um, wow, but. No, I'm just what saying say it's about different. That's thing. not, is that a cut? That's not a dig. I'm just saying it's different. You guys. <laughs> Anyways, I'm, I was doing a bit of, of research and I was looking back at some of the studies on like voter ignorance and I found this piece and I can't remember who wrote it. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to steal your stuff and not credit you. Um, but it was flagging this number. It's like 38% of voters had no idea which party controlled Congress or something like it's that. probably uh, Brian Kaplan. And, and well, it wasn't in, doubt. in this particular case, but he, um, he's written plenty of great things about this, like the myth of the rational voter. And the fact that like voters have always been plenty ignorant about their politics, that there is a, pr a tremendous amount of just misinformation that voters have, or at least a gulf in terms of the amount of knowledge that they believe they have or perhaps ought to have in order to weigh in on some of these important issues. And it always makes me a little a little nervous when we start to talk about, you know, the 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 prevailing threat of fake news without acknowledging the reality that it's not as though we were in a position before where voters were paying close attention to all of the best news sources before and using that to make determinations about who to vote for. So you know, when when we get to the point where we're taking where there's a big push to get rid of, say, Alex Jones on Facebook or Twitter, and sometimes it's not Alex Jones. Sometimes it's, you know, the uh, I saw a piece in Reason, Matt, about like smaller libertarian leaning like publishers on Facebook who suddenly found themselves getting tossed off of the platform because they were caught up in this dragnet that Dude, was supposed we to be. We can't get our Facebook ads 
approved. Is that right? Days. Yeah, I, I probably shouldn't talk about this out loud, but no, you should. Um, <laughs> because of our, uh, we're having a reasons having a webathon right now, right? We do it every year to to raise money from people who are freeloading on the site, um, voluntary, whatever. Uh, and as such, we say, you know, who's the place that's going to talk about X, Y, Z, and the other thing after Z? And those things tend to be about, you know. Uh, uh, sexual assault cases on campus. Uh, there's a lot of trigger words involved, right, right, right. is what I'm saying. And the ads for them were serially uh, uh, not approved by yeah. Facebook. Yeah. Because they're like, oh, I'm not so sure. It sounds like this. Because they're the, the the bots were basically running it uh, and, and and finding that they were coming afoul of uh, of their concerns. And I want to, to, to pivot to that, uh, to a question uh, for Kevin, because you had mentioned this before of, of like the those companies discovering post-election that they had these problems. It's the discovery process that I'm interested in here. Like how much of it is, you know, uh, freaking Sean, what's his face? Uh, uh, <laughs> what's his name? Mark Zuckerberg. They all have different names. <laughs> Sean Parker. Thank you. Um, how old are you? <laughs> it's, it's, dude, like – I stroked out, so like I don't. Anyways, um, Twitter, no, Twitter I, is owned by Three Fingers Brown. <laughs> See, I get Mord, that. Mordecai, Mordecai. Three, yeah. um, Mordecai. How much of this is motivated kind of reasoning, where everyone in the world suddenly became focused on X problems? Like, whoa, hey, robot says we must have this problem right now here, uh, as opposed to them actually understanding it. What I'm worried about in this uh, current climate of discussion about social media, and I think, and maybe this is actually the better question, my impression is that we have uh, an anti-social media panic happening right now. You cover social media. Tell me I'm wrong. I think you're you're not wrong that there is an element sure, of thank you. Uh, there is an element of, of moral panic here, but like these are real questions that need to be grappled with. Like mm-hmm. we have a, a handful of companies who have de facto sort of control of internet speech, um, and we. Camille cocked his head, just for the record. It's just, there's a lot. Let him go. Let him, <laughs> for Christ's sake, go. please. <laughs> I mean, it is it is theoretically possible to start a competitor to Facebook and have it grow and have a different set of policies. It is theoretically possible for YouTube, you know, competitors to rise up. And But what we have in, in function right now is a handful of, you know, companies all based in California, all, you know, run by Americans, all subject to sort of American standards mm-hmm. that are that are sort of setting standards for the speech online of, of billions of people, not most of whom are not in America, most of whom are not American. Um, and that's causing like not just controversies and, and, you know, ads getting rejected for, for, you know, spurious reasons, but like actual loss of life and violent conflict in parts of the world. Well, can, can, can certainly lead to that. I mean, talking this about is... Myanmar? Myanmar, uh, India, Sri Lanka, N- yeah. Nigeria, take your pick. Like we're, this isn't; these are not isolated incidents. Sure, anymore. no, no, that that could happen. But but it, but interestingly, when you say that they have de facto control over speech, the the controversy here, for the most part, because of the way the lens that we're looking at this through, which is an election where the wrong people were saying the wrong things online, the the controversy is that there is insufficient content moderation. Right. So this isn't a question of whether or not the Internet is still a free place where people can say what they want to. The controversy from a political standpoint largely seems to be that 
people are able to say what they want to, that can't stand. And to the extent that is what we're pushing these technology companies to fix, I get really, really nervous. Like my skin crawls every time I hear a congressperson talk about the need to rein in these technology companies. And quite frankly, and I've, I mean, I have a media company and we have business with Facebook and we, we may have business with Twitter and we cover a lot of these folks. So, you know, I, I hope this doesn't put me in their bad graces. I don't think they've handled this particularly well, quite frankly. I don't think the armies of fact checkers that they've hired are a great look. I don't think that, that the notion of outs of, of us, empowering them and hoping and aspiring that they will be the 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 guardians of truth. I don't think that's a good thing for for us in the long run. I mean, that makes them more powerful, not less powerful, no? Right. I mean, I, I think that what we're talking about here is a conversation that was going to happen eventually that may have True. been accelerated yeah. by the election. It's happening in a hysterical environment, in my estimation. Well, and and I think it's a healthy conversation. I think, you know, what what sort of got us there, you know, you can argue either way on it. But I think I think it's good that we're having this conversation because it is incredibly weird mm-hmm. that we are living in a world where like a couple of people in California are like, being asked to set global speech standards for billions of people all over the world in countries that most of them probably have never visited. Yeah. Um, that is a very bizarre situation. Yeah, yeah. And like we we need to talk about that and, and figure out what to do about it. But I think you're not sort of you're not wrong that there is I think we're having this conversation sooner than we might have yeah. um, under President Hillary Clinton. Yeah, I think that I think that the conversation's expanding mm. quite a bit, too. I mean, taking taking the the um, election as a starting off point. I mean, I I talked uh, to Matthew Prince, who's the CEO of Cloudflare, I think last year. Um, it was a really, really fun, really interesting interview. He's a very bright guy. And he told me that he decided one day when he woke up that um, the Daily Stormer, this uh, like uh, neo-Nazi rag uh, on the Internet, uh, was not going to get the protection of his company anymore, which essentially meant it was off the Internet. So, I mean, it's a fa- and he said to me, he's like, look, there's a couple of us that have the power to do that. And that when I take the basically what Cloudflare does is it protects uh, websites against denial of service attacks and other attacks. But it's basically DDoS attacks and DOS attacks that they'll prevent it and keep it online. And the second they took that <clears throat> that protection away from the Daily Stormer, the Daily Stormer effectively disappeared. I mean, it, eventually it came back up in, in different forms in different places. I mean, you can't really kill it. But I mean, it made it made the the life of these these idiot Nazis very difficult, and it was one man's decision. And I find that fairly interesting and 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 also quite troubling. And you know, I think Kevin's points are are right. I mean, also I mean, today, look, you know, I couldn't figure out because I was doing other things if it was a real story that Twitter decided that we couldn't dead name people, which is a, which is a phrase I hadn't previously heard, and that uh, and other things that essentially saying that if you say that Bruce Jenner won a medal at the 1976 Olympics in, in, in Montreal, you could have your account suspended, as far as I can tell. But that level of power, of course, what we do in in our jobs and say, look, you know, the government is the one that can regulate speech, but it is actually a free speech issue. 
Um, it's a different type of free speech issue, issue, of course, but it is nevertheless a free speech issue when you have um, people that usually people that you don't like, because that's the point of free speech is not to protect our kind of banal and boring speech. It's to protect the speech of people, you know, who pretend that they're Joseph Goebbels in the basement of their uncle's house in, in Wichita, Kansas, or, you know, people like Alex Jones, who I think is, is a, is a complete nut and somebody who's bad for the country in almost every way. Is it a smart thing to take these people offline? So I think that the, the, the conversation that started, I mean, started of course before this, but really accelerated with uh, the election, then jumped after Charlottesville to a conversation about these fascist websites who are paying money to places like Cloudflare to essentially stay online or places that, you know, like whether it's GoDaddy or wherever their DNS is registered, um, taking, pushing and, and, you know, basically effectively taking them off online for long periods of time. Like that's where it's come very quickly. And I think that is a direct result uh, of the election and ultimately a result of right. things well, like Charlottesville. I, I think like I, I, I share many of these questions with you guys. I think where I differ is that I, I look at these things as like a balancing of harms. And I think that like on, in aggregate, um, what we see are, are sort of harms that are, are very concrete on one side, which are like my ad didn't get approved. My account got taken down. You know, Twitter made this policy that I disagree with. On the other hand, like there's real violence coming out of this. Like th these are not imaginary um, fights that people are getting into on the Internet that don't spill over into real life. I mean, we saw it with Gab and, you know, the, the Pittsburgh synagogue shooter. Like we saw with Cesar Syoc, the, the guy in Florida who was mailing bombs to all the Democrats. Like there is a radicalization taking place online. And I think that more than this, I, that's the kind of harm that I am most concerned about. Um, and you may disagree, but I think there's like I, the, the tendency on both sides of this debate. And I don't think it's a good tendency is to trivialize the, the, the harms on the other side to say like, Oh, well it's, it's just Alex Jones, you know, who cares about Alex Jones? Um, he's not, you know, a protected free speaker on the other side. It's like, Oh, these are just like, you know, these are just shit posters, um, you know, putting Hitler memes on 4chan like this isn't real harm. And I think like we, we just have to be able to have good faith conversations about the fact that like, yes, we do want to have a conversation about free speech. We also want to happen, have a conversation about what happens when free speech is unfettered on a platform, which is, you know, we've seen what happens um, It's that it ends up drowning out certain types of speech and, and posing you know, threats like bodily real threats to people. But is that Leonard. true? Go Look, I think that I think that's the right question, and I, I, I think Kevin's right, right to pose it, and we should be able to have adult conversations about this. I fear that we're not having adult conversations about it for one reason: is that it's it's kind of a foregone conclusion with a lot of people that I know that these threats have increased, and that you know Nazi activity is now through the roof. And but the one thing that I when I ask people to clarify for me, they don't really know is do we have data on this? I mean, we have a, an enormous amount of data of this stuff in the past. I mean, there's a, a podcast that Ruth Graham is doing now, which is quite good, actually, uh, for Slate, on the Ruby Ridge uh, business. Uh, you know, and, and at that point, when you have Randy Weaver and these guys that are hanging out um, at the Aryan Nation compounds and, you know, arming themselves and showing up when the feds show up, you know, like you know, the Timothy McVeigh's of the world, the people that are, you know, on the newsletter circuit in the 90s before uh, the Internet, you'd get these 
insane uh, fascist newsletters that that David Duke and all of his uh, idiot acolytes would publish. But is it is it worse than it's than it has been? It feels like it is, but I don't know if that's true. There's a presumption that because you know th- these people can coordinate. Charlottesville, which, by the way, let's remember to point out, was a couple hundred people out of a nation of 335 million. I mean, it's easier coordinating this stuff now, and that's a problem. Kevin, I want to ask you, since we have you, it's a a great fortune that we do. Um, I had the impression that right and left, as expressed in the Republican and Democratic parties right now, are so eager to regulate social media in ways they're talking about Section 230, all this kind of stuff, ways that make my libertarian heart quake. Um, What do you think is going to happen? And maybe think about your answer in terms of my quaking libertarian heart. (laughs) I'm I'm sorry that your heart is quaking. You may be heartened (laughs) to know that I think we are still um, pretty far away from any actual sort of Dodd-Frank for tech or anything like that. I don't think like there's a like I, I've been to some of these hearings. I've heard these senators asking questions of Orange. Mark Zuckerberg. Um, you know, it like as I said, like around the Mark Zuckerberg thing, like it felt like a, you know, five hour long tech support call. Like, <laughs> it was like it was like, you know, teaching your grandpa how to use the clicker. How do you make it money? was like <laughs> Right. And and like so from that perspective, like I don't think I I think that the fears of like imminent and and sort of smothering amounts of legislation on social media companies in particular are not all that likely. But the culture right now feels Mm -hmm. pretty well dead set again, the political class culture, Uh I, I would put more than the actual culture of human beings who do whatever they do in their lives, uh, feels pretty dead set against uh, social media right now, like that they want to to like present the scalp. Well, they're, they're, I think they're taking a lot of action preemptively in order to stave off regulation. And to the extent there's going to be regulation, they, they're positioning themselves pretty well to try and inform the way that net legislation is shaped. And I mean, I think a concern that has been expressed, I've actually read a, a phenomenal piece written by some guy named Matt Welch recently really? um, that talked about oh. how the regulatory machine works and how oftentimes once these large companies get into the process, they end up getting regulations that make them a great deal more powerful than they were in the beginning, which is a, a concern that I, I sort of uh, mentioned a little bit earlier. Um, but I mean, the president is... I think he's already on his way to the G20 right now. Um, And one of the things he'll be doing at the G20 is sitting down with the folks from China and having conversations. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not good. I'll just edit it's in Trump's chi- voice. Was, no, no, we, we got chi- that. China. 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 But he's going to be sitting down with them, um, and there are a lot of tech-related issues with respect to China. Tradition. Recently, we've had a lot of conversations about protecting our IP and et cetera. But more recently, the biggest news, I think, this week, uh, The Intercept has been doing a lot of reporting about this project that Google was working on in the shadows for a new system that would have given the Chinese government a great deal of information on their own population um, and a backlash that's been inspired by in in and amongst the ranks of uh, Googleites. I, I don't know if we, is that what we call Googlers. people who work for Google? Googlers. Oh, that's good. But I'm a Googler because I Google 
which is different. No, but they have a whole, there's a whole suite of terminology. Like when you start uh. there, you're a noogler. I wish I were kidding. too close to. I wish I were kidding. And when you make up these words, you're a loser. <laughs> <laughs> and when you leave, you become like a zoogler, like a X-O-O-G-L-E-R. Oh, that's cool. I'm telling you, I'm not making this up. Well, they're making bank, so they could do, they could do what they please, I suppose. Exactly. But, but, um, I wonder, Kevin, what your thoughts are watching this. And, and the one other thing I'll add to this is this comes on the heels of a number of pretty like dystopian sounding stories with these really scary headlines about this new program. And it's not quite new, but we're seeing new reporting on it where the Chinese government is going to be giving scores to all of its citizens. Dude, cover um, of the next everyone, magazine. It's Phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, in, in order to have, it's essentially a, a citizenship score in order to get a high quality citizenship score, which will give you access to everything. Um, you need to be in compliance with what the government wants. And to the extent you are not, the line from the Chinese report that I saw that has been repeated over and over again in these stories is that you will not be able to take a single step if you have a low score. It is kind of frightening and terrifying. I think a lot of people imagine something that'll be far more effective than any other sort of mass surveillance program in history because it's super powered by, by technology. So anyway, I've, I've laid out a lot there. I, I'm, I'm wondering, Kevin, what your read is on this as someone who watches this stuff really, really closely. Well, the Google issue you bring up is fascinating. So I've been like obsessed with this story because basically like the sort of background on this is there's been sort of growing unrest in the rank and file mm -hmm. at big tech companies and especially at Google. Don't be evil. You had uh, the James Damore thing. You had um, the Times article from a, you know, a month or two ago about the payouts to this former executive, the $90 million to the guy who sexually harassed people. So like the Dragon Project Dragonfly is the Chinese version of, of the search engine that they were, you know, sort of exploring building, are exploring building um, for the Chinese market. They used to be in China. They pulled out of the market. The, a condition of going back into that market um, would be building basically a special censored version of Google um, f that would have data warehoused in China that would sort of appeal to the, the Chinese government's sensibilities about what is and isn't allowed. And what is the status of this project, Kevin? Because it's 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 unclear. Uh, the reporting I've seen on this is a bit conflicting. Are they actively working on this? Have they only talked about doing it or, or what? So Google has said officially that it's an exploratory project, um, but the Intercept <laughs> story and some, some other reporting has suggested that this was actually like, this, this is like pretty close to implementation or that it's, it's at wow. least further along than just sort of putting ideas on a whiteboard um, that they're they're actually sort of in the in the process of making this a real thing. And and what's fascinating to me is like you can imagine like lots of levers of power on a tech company. So you have government, you have regulation, right? You have shareholders. These are all companies that, you know, are are ostensibly accountable to shareholders. The one that has actually made the difference so far this year is employees. Labor, because man. Um, this is an incredibly competitive labor market. I mean, it costs so much money to hire an engineer uh, at Google. And if they can, they're smart enough to work for Google, they're probably smart enough to work for a couple hundred other sure. companies. Huge competition for them. In the Bay yeah. Area. 
And so they're under enormous pressure to keep their workers happy. Um, you, you don't want to be in the position where all the smartest college students, you know, graduating from computer science programs at Stanford want to go work for someone else. So what we saw with the walkout, um, and that was not about this uh, China thing. This was about sexual harassment and, and diversity issues at Google. But 20,000 people walked out at Google and it, you know, brought the company to its knees, essentially. Like they had to sort of acquiesce to some of these demands. And like that's been an that's been an amazing thing to watch this year is like the extent to which these companies are making decisions not to accommodate the whims of government regulators, not to accommodate their shareholders, but to accommodate the people that work for them. Two questions follow up. Uh, one is that is there any indication that the workers care about the China stuff? Um, and two, I'll remember in a second. Yeah. Th- so there's a petition that's been going around, sort of an open letter mm-hmm. that um, lots of Googlers have been signing. There, are, I think, there are 500 signatures on this at at this point, to just basically to demand that this be sort of taken off the table. Um, and this is like, I, I don't know if this registers as crazy to people who haven't been reporting on the tech industry for a long time, but like these companies are incredibly secretive. Like the you know, I've been reporting on these companies. It's very hard to get people from inside Google or Facebook or Apple or any of these companies to to, to talk to you if you're a reporter. They don't open up. They stonewall. Like they're they're scared as hell to like even approach uh, anyone who might conceivably put their name to something. Um, and now, like in the last couple of months, now you see. Googlers openly, um, you know, posting medium posts where they're, you know, disagreeing with their bosses, going on podcasts to discuss how unhappy they are with their management. My it's God, sort of, they're more open to the press than the New York Times employees, generally speaking, not you. <laughs> Jeez. I'm here, Sorry. aren't I? No, no, you are. But no, seriously, like when you read stories about the New York Times it's in, and or about about any other media company, I didn't mean to single out the NYT. No, I mean, I mean, we, we, People don't go on pers- the record. It's yeah, we, really, really this, uh, yeah, rare. You, you often need to get literally uh, centralized approval to to talk about anything or it, your jobs. It's I mean, it's, my, it's actually been a, a challenge for the podcast, <laughs> transparently. Sure. I was like, trying we, to be as careful as I could. We have people we invite. <laughs> yeah. and, and to the New York Times credit, we have had on multiple people from the New York Times. Yes, thank but you. But there are other publications where folks will get invited and they need to get permission from the folks that they work for. Um, and it is not always forthcoming. Nope. Um, nope. Which is uh, unfortunate. Well, my, it's, it's my, a question of leverage, right? Yeah. Like, like media employees... Um, have some leverage depending mm-hmm. on their position within the company, but like we're not tech employees. Like this it's, is true. it's a yeah. it's a less so you're bragging labor. about being like kind of. I didn't man. take that as a brag. <laughs> no, no, it's not a brag. I'm totally expendable, <laughs> but like exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, it was like we all have like we're all, we're all cogs in the machine, or <laughs> you all are cogs in the machine. I, I could, wanted to I can't ask, get fired. So remember uh, number two uh, is that that whole don't do evil thing. Yeah. I, they, jet, rem- they jettisoned rem- that. I remember formally, that, I believe, because like I remember the '90s. Yeah, but like that hasn't been a thing for a long time, has well, it? They got they rid still of that. that. It was fairly no. recently that they got rid of they that. They officially right? got re- rid of it recently. Yeah. yeah. Now I think it's like organize the world's information and make it useful. <laughs> <laughs> it's like fucking some, bureaucrats. I fuck them. I know. <laughs> but I love you know like all the tinkering with their mission statements is like uh, that don't these companies do evil is good that's a good mission statement right don't, yeah. don't be evil is pretty good right it's pretty good is it don't be or don't do it was don't, don't be, be don't be evil i think don't do 
Well, don't you, do so you can be evil, just like don't better. don't do anything about it. Don't do evils. It's a little it's poetic. More, no, really it's tech. more like active tense. It's like the verb wants to go forward. Right? You should, I see where you, you, be I see where you are. Where you're going. Brand, you. brand yeah. and consultant. Yeah, there's they a reason he's not. Yeah. <laughs> pay you a lot of money for, for, for the record. Um, yeah. That's right. Like, po- poetic was a compliment, but in, in a way <laughs> that didn't euphemism. seem like it, it didn't seem like it would work professionally. Yeah. Where are we? Um, well, it looks like Moynihan um, had to jump. Moynihan, you still there? And I think he had to jump. Um, so we so we've lost him. Um, so I mean, we've been going for a little while here, um, and I'm enjoying this conversation. But I think we should probably start to 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 reel this in a little bit. I mean, Kevin, uh, we covered a hell of a lot of ground here. Are there any points that you wanted to perhaps emphasize or revisit before we punch out or perhaps any other things that you are working on that you might be interested in sharing with us something that you've got coming down the pipe uh well right now i'm i'm working on a story about tiktok you guys know about tiktok this is the uh Mm -hmm. twitter bloomberg thing or no is tiktok the chinese um uh video it's the Play? it's a it's a Chinese owned video app. And yeah. it is like incredible. Have you guys been on? Do you guys remember Vine? Yeah, but this is the thing. Vine? I thought it was just Vine. Why is it incredible? It's like it's like the new incarnation of Vine. Um, it's like the, it's the only thing on my phone that like consistently brings me joy. Huh? Mm. Yeah. Anyway, are you, are you not concerned about using TikTok on your phone because it's obviously the Chinese government is able to watch you on this app and i don't know what they'll do yeah i mean if they want to know like how many like flossing videos i've watched like they're (laughs) they're they're, uh they're welcome to it what do you mean by flossing video the dance yeah the dance yeah your your daughter's still too young to do it but when when she gets to kindergarten everyone will be with like your legs yep is that a thing no it's Uh, a hand thing yeah it's a hand thing relax is that cool Uh, is yeah, it's for, well, for for the this current thirty second moment. It is because oh, of we're not the demo. Oh, yeah. Okay, <laughs> and to be clear to for know. our our listeners, TikTok is spelled uh, the k sounds with uh-huh. a k. With uh-huh. a k. Yeah, one word: t i k t o k. At the i for a moment, um, isn't Bloomberg's thing with Twitter called TikTok as well? Yeah, but that's with C's. Uh, Very okay. different. Okay. That's why he's never going to go anywhere. Yeah. He's running for president again for another like two weeks. You mean weeks. Mike Bloomberg? Yeah, yeah not, not, not Camille. Mike Bloomberg is running for president. Yeah. Correct. <laughs> I don't know. How do we do that? The field is open, Camille. Oh, uh, yeah. We're, that, there's nothing to talk about for me. Not, not there. I'm not getting divorced. Um, so TikTok is exciting. You are following that <laughs> and you're writing about it. Okay. Well, I'm divorce kicks him off his game. I'm glad it's that weird. you're excited about it. I don't want to get divorced. I don't want to lose my, uh, lose so my what, marriage. What, 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 why is TikTok... What what brings you joy about TikTok? It's it's just very dumb and silly. <laughs> and and dumb and silly is good because I we, remember we're such a, are they dancing such babies. A like, remember the time. whole internet was dumb and silly. Yeah, people loved it. It was great. <laughs> are you old, are you old enough to remember that? You know, I was around for like you know the early like message boards and like right. I mean there was a there was a good dumb period of of online and now like everything's bad except like the stuff that is dumb. <laughs> This is only the stuff that is like There's trivial. Some, I remember like, like garbage MP4s being passed around by email that were amazing. Like that was yeah. they, like people they, they were conversation starters for like weeks. Yeah. yeah. And now you know. There's a lot of. I think that's mostly sarcasm. That we get a lot of bad stories about bad things on the internet. But generally speaking, I think the state of the internet 
is like pretty good. Like, is we're it? still getting awesome things from it. Yes, absolutely. No, 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 I, I don't wish we didn't have it's the still, internet. It's still bringing I, I just, us together, etc. All that stuff. We're just, still having conversations. I don't, I don't want to do the French goodbye here, yeah. which is to say that as they're leaving the portal of your front door, they initiate a conversation uh-huh. about whether Macron has been doing a good job or a bad job. <laughs> it's kind of like other... the Colombo. That's one okay. more thing. Yeah, one more question, yeah. right? Um, however, uh-huh. I do want to ask Camille, since you're being optimistic about this stuff, mm-hmm. in what way does the internet give you joy right now? It, it is a remarkable tool for doing things that I could not have otherwise done without extraordinary expense. I mean, I, I am able to find products and services that are of profound interest to me. And I think I've talked about this before on the podcast. I find, for example, a lot of the the overwrought concern about Facebook's like ad targeting and their sponsorship model and how they're using your data, the data you're freely giving them because they're giving you a free service to give you these highly tailored ads yeah, highly tailored ads from mom and pop companies in many cases at a minimum, like really small companies as opposed to like, like Ford or, or something. Companies. Yeah. And and they're selling you stuff that is totally relevant to your life that you're completely interested in. This is a better world. It, I would much rather have ads like that than ads for Tide every damn place. And I mean, when it comes to like journalism, I mean, the number of voices that are out there on online that are producing like really interesting, high quality stuff, giving us perspectives that we would not have been able to find otherwise, it's still there and it's still vibrant. And to the extent people are gravitating towards fake news is, again, the reason why I, I, I have so many questions about this is not so much because I don't appreciate that there can be adverse consequences in a free society and you know people say bad things and bad things happen. Totally true. I don't dismiss that. Um, I think it has something to do with the fact that, generally speaking, like the the access to this platform and the various ways in which this platform is enriching our lives. I mean, it's just it's myriad, and it is overwhelmingly the case that this is very good. There are there are challenges to be sure. There are data security concerns. There are some privacy concerns, but I think most Americans, most internet users aren't nearly as concerned about their privacy as they ought to be. They just don't seem to care. But, you know, all in all, it's like really awesome. This is this is great. You like how can anyone complain? Feel good about my life for the first time. <laughs> and I think that's a fine moment to stop. Good. I'm glad. All right. Is that that's for real? We can stop it. I mean, Kevin, uh, we'll give you the last word. I, 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 we could cut this if you wanted because that was a clean break right there. Yep. But I want to say, Matt, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's great that you're here and that you're alive. Seriously, edit that out. Uh, so yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, there was uh, two weeks ago or ten days ago. I, I forget because I can't think straight anymore due to the. Um, the blood in my brain not working in the same way as before, but I was uh, in an ambulance going across the East River. Um, and uh, since then, we've had the great uh, podcast from Camille and friends and uh, Moynihan's work. So maybe the, uh, the the solution is to put me in an ambulance a little bit more often. We, we'll get like high quality I was going to do that anyways. Let's not do that anymore. No <laughs> more ambulance rides for Matt Welch. Just, just be fine all the time and show up here and – no unexpected messages from you visiting hospitals. I don't like it. Cool. Yeah. See? 
So that, this is almost too intimate. Yeah, but that, that's now it's time to say bye. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thank Kevin, you. Thank Kevin. you so much for coming. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Kevin. I appreciate it. I think it was very cool. Um, I hope to see you at the, the live show, um, weedafifth.com forward slash events with an S. Uh, see you later. Bye. 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 We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse.